Good morning, friends. It's great to have you guys with us. If you've been with us over the last handful of weeks, uh, we have been in a series called Advent where we are just looking at the uh, expectant of Jesus and the preparation uh, that would have been going on in the days of Israel as they expected and awaited a Messiah. Over the last couple of weeks, we've uh, talked about hope and uh, we've talked about faith. And today we're going to be talking about joy. Now, when you think about joy, I think it's oftentimes difficult to find. But when I think about joy, I can't help but think about the kind of the nostalgic movie, The Christmas Carol, where you have um, two, two people who in some ways... Uh, can kind of show the contrasting views of maybe joy. Uh, you've got Ebenezer Screw and Charles Dickens' novella, eventually becomes a, a play, and then uh, you know it'll hit the movies uh, at some point, and all the different renditions of that movie as well. But you have uh, in there, you have Ebenezer Scrooge, the, the bitter old man who uh, is tight-fisted, uh, is grumpy, um, is in many ways, uh, just hard nose, and you never really see this gentle or kindred spirit in him. Then yet you see uh, another person, and you see this personification of what in some ways would be this cheerfulness uh, that would be found in his worker, Bob Cratchit, a guy who is poor and uh, earns an honest day's wages uh, every single day, but he's paid meagerly at home. He has a wife named Emily and several children, one of which, if you remember, is Tiny Tim, a, a kid who uh, eventually uh, would, uh, would die in the narrative if, if Scrooge didn't change his ways. And so you've got these two contrasting views. You've got a man who's bitter and old and, and just hard-nosed, tight-fisted, and that you, you have another one who seems to lack almost everything there is in life, and yet he seems to be joyful and exuberant and jolly, even when things don't always go his way. Now, when you look at this movie, you've got to ask yourself, well, is that really the picture of joy? But then I ask the question, what is joy anyway? Have you ever thought about defining joy and, and really what that even is? Uh, matter of fact, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, he he takes a shot at defining joy, and he uh, writes in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, uh, these words. He says, Joy is an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. Which you have to read like three or four times to understand what he said. Okay, So joy is an unsatisfied desire, which it itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. He, in some ways, is helping us realize that, that joy is a, a deep yearning, a longing for something in our soul, some unquenchable thirst, looking for something that would satisfy. What's interesting, though, is he does give a contrasting view in that same narrative. He says this, Joy must be sharply distinguished from both happiness and from pleasure. So what he is saying, he says, it's a desire that's more desirable than any other satisfaction, but you ought to note that it's not happiness and it's not pleasure. Which I think is really confusing to a lot of people in our society and can even be confusing to me. Uh, it's this unsearchable quest for something that's fulfilling, but yet you're never going to find joy. You're never going to find the pursuit of it in in happiness, you're never going to find it in this idea of pleasure, or deep satisfaction. So it means that you're in some ways going to be on this quest for a long time. Unless you don't go with C.S. Lewis's definition, maybe you go with Webster's. So, I mean, I think it's important that if I'm going to give you this thought process, let's look what Webster says. 
And so Webster is going to define joy a touch differently. Look what, he, uh, look what it says. It's going to give you both a noun and a verb. So a noun is a person, a place, or a thing. And a verb is, is simply it's describing an action, right? So look at this. An, it is a feeling of great happiness, or the verb means to experience great pleasure and delight, which seems to go totally different than what C.S. Lewis described. So C.S. Lewis says there's, there's this desire for something more than any other satisfaction, and it's not a feeling, it's not a, a particular place or a satisfaction, it's not this great grandeur of happiness. And then yet Webster would say, well, it's this idea, this feeling of happiness, or it's to experience a great pleasure to delight, which then begs the question, what really is joy? And I'm glad you asked. Because today I'm going to show it to you. And I want you to see that joy is found not in experiences, in spite of circumstances. Joy seems to be found in a particular place. Now, I want to look at uh, something that we're probably never going to look at when you're thinking about Advent. But I want to look at Psalm chapter 4. Now, if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Psalms. Psalms, if you're really good, uh, if you got your Bible, you can turn halfway in your Bible. And if, you're, if you really nail the halfway place, you're going to land in Psalms, okay? Um, and if you do that, you can just kind of have, quietly have satisfaction in, in your own body. You know, like, oh, I got it. Um, Psalms is, is one of um, the, the poetical sections. So the Old Testament, just real quickly, is broken down into three parts. Uh, there's, there's 17 historical books, there's five poetical books, and then there's 17 prophets, so in, in this, his, uh, after the historical section, you've got these poetical groupings and you've got psalms in which here you're going to see a song that David writes. And you could probably characterize this and a handful of others as a psalm of trust. It's, it's a song that David has written. Uh, he's penned it with his own hands and likely he would sing it um, in the evenings. And it was a, just a song uh, of trust. It was a song from his heart as he would put his trust in a holy God. You will see uh, similar psalms in different places. Matter of fact, if you were to compare Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 together, they would have similar undertones. You might even could, could kind of put them together. Psalm 3, we know, is a time where Absalom, uh, which was David's son, was, was after him and his throne, uh, was uh, not only jeering at him, but ultimately wanted the kingdom. Uh, we see that being a very difficult time. Well, Psalm 4 backs it up. And we don't know if it's because they're, they're, these two psalms are similar. Uh, you could say, well, maybe it's from the same experience. I don't know that that's likely. I think it's a stretch to say for certain that it is. But what we do know is Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are both psalms, psalms of trust, and they have similar undertones in this that... There's strength that has to be possessed from a person. And so when we look at joy, I want you to see where it comes from. And if we're going to have joy, we need to know why. Well, Proverbs 17 verse 22 just simply says this, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. And so don't we all long for joy? But what happens when you face perilous, difficult, hard times? What happens when you're not happy? Or what happens when there's absolute new pleasure in your life? Well, Webster would say, well, you'd be absent of joy. But C.S. Lewis says, there could be something deeper, far deeper still. And what is it? And I think David gives it to us. 
The king of Israel at this particular time is in difficult hardship. There's calamity around him. There's distress among the people of Israel. And quite frankly, he's going to show us in a few moments that there are men who are not satisfied with his um, leading in the kingdom. Uh, And you see how they approach it. But first, I want you to see where the basis of joy really is derived. And so here it is. Psalm 4, verse 1. David says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So what David is basically saying, he says, Listen, um, Lord, you're the God of my righteousness. And he says, and time and time again, he goes, You have given me relief when I was in distress. Now, when you think about distress and you were to look at it uh, in its original form, distress literally means to be backed up into a corner. It literally means that you are uh, under great anxiousness and anxiety. You're fretting because you feel like there's no way out. And then what you see here, uh, David, the king of Israel at this time says, but God, you've given me relief. So what does the idea of relief mean? The idea of relief means there was a way that was made possible when it seemed there was no way out. The idea of relief in this particular context literally means to enlarge or to open up. So if you are in a tight spot and you were distressed, for someone to open it up and make a way out is relief. And that's what he's talking about. He goes, when, when things seem to be really crowding in, when I felt like I was backed into a corner, God, oh God of righteousness, gave me relief. He made a way. And so when you see this, he is simply saying that, that in many ways, he was the one who, though he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, there was one who was with him. Who was it? It was the great shepherd. It was the one who guided him, who his rod and his staff brought comfort. That's the idea. And when you see a psalm of trust, whether it was Psalm 3 or 4 or a handful of the others, what you would see is, is that any time you see a, a difficult um, Psalm of trust like this, where you see that the Lord is being recognized, what you have to realize is that there's always something lurking in the shadows. There is something that's bringing the distress. There's something that's bringing the unsettled experience. Well, if the basis of the, of, of the joy that David has is in a person, O oh God of righteousness, the one who relieves the difficult moments, then the question is, is what is he needing relief from? Well, he's, he's wanting us to see that that there's an enemy, and there's an enemy who has no longer put his faith or his experience in the person of the work of God, but he's actually put his trust in something else. And when you put your, your, your trust in something else, then what you experience is the thief of joy. And so let me show you what the thief of joy is in this particular setting. David says, after he says, O oh God of righteousness, you've given me relief from my distress, he says, O oh men... How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? What he's saying is is this. He goes, I am troubled. Oh God, you have provided a way out. But he goes, there are men who are after me. He goes, there are men who want my kingdom. And he goes, and they are taking my honor and they're turning it into shame. Now, if you look closely at this text, I think you can make a, a really strong case that what David is saying here is not necessarily what you and I are reading. See, if I pray, and this is the way I often do, it's like, hey God, um, Lord, would you get these people off my back? 
because they're hurting my name. I don't think that's what David means here. When he says, oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? I think what he is saying is, how long will you go against God's anointed? What he's doing is he's saying, hey, foolish men, if you're not careful, you're going to put your hope in the wrong place. And he's encouraging all these men that happen to be in the kingdom, which are obviously here using vain words, and they're using lies to bring about unsettling in the land. And so they are slandering the king. They're opposing the king. And instead of David saying, God, will you give me relief from my enemies? I think what he's saying is, oh men, how long will you continue to go against the anointed king? Now, obviously, he is the anointed king in Israel. And if you remember, this man, David, came from the line of Jesse, his father. And, and there could have been any of Jesse's sons that were picked. But if you remember, God sovereignly used Samuel to pick the new king. Out of all the brothers, he hand-selected the young, measly boy who was out in the field tending the flocks. And he said, that's the next king. So what David is saying is, I'm anointed. I was hand-picked. And because I'm anointed and handpicked, he goes, if you are going against me, you're opposing me, the king. If you're unsettled with my leadership, he's helping uh, these men see, hey, you're not just opposing me. He goes, you're opposing the God who put me in place. That's what he's saying. And what he's doing is he's going, look, are you robbed of joy with vain words and deceitful lies? Or where are you putting your trust? That's where, in essence, he's asking. Now, I think that in this particular setting, if I wanted to camp out here, I could for quite a while. And the reason why is because I think we live in a day where we obviously often forget that joy is not found in a political climate. I don't think. I don't find great joy when I look at the political climate. Guys, it's not found in a in a president or but I think if we're not careful we think it is now where I would give warning and I think what David is trying to do here to his here and to his audience which ultimately is to God but as he as he prays to God he's saying Lord how long will these men how long will they put their trust in the wrong place how long will they search for joy in the wrong areas that's what his prayer is and even though he is the one being assaulted, even though he's the one being chased, even though he's the one that's uh, being, um, in some ways, uh, the recipient of difficult lies and vain attacks, he goes, Lord, I see that you are being attacked. Friends, can I just help you understand that in this season, as difficult it may be in your life, there is a God who places people in authority. And quite contrary to what you and I think, whether we play a part in elections or not, the reality is, is God puts people in places of authority, whether it be thrones or kingdoms or presidencies. And what I think what we have to be really careful is that if we're going to be characterized as people of joy, that we need to be careful that we're not slandering the very people that God put in authority. Why? Because if we slander the people that God put in authority, we're not just slandering them, we're actually slandering the king that placed them there. Which is a real challenge for us, isn't it? It's a challenge for, for me oftentimes because it's not limited to a presidency, friends. It's limited um, not by any scope that we have in our mind. The reality is we have bosses that we work for and they don't de bring delight to our heart. 
But God placed them in authority over us. And to verbally assault them is actually sinning against a holy God. Friends, that's, that's leaders in lots of different sectors. I think I could even say, man, like when you, when you, uh, man, when you attack your pastor and elders, okay, well, I'll stop there. No. <laughs> but the reality is, is just be thinking about that. Be aware of that. That's what David, I think, is saying here. He goes on, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. So David is saying, I know the Lord has set me apart. He knows that he was handpicked. He was chosen. So he's grieved in his heart when people are sinning, not merely against him, but when they're sinning against the holy God. Now, I don't know about you. I, I don't have a problem being grieved when somebody's sinning against me. But when's the last time that you've been grieved, that you've been moved to anger because somebody sins against God? What makes you angry? I always ask that question this week. And can I honestly confess to you that what makes me angry oftentimes has nothing to do with God? What makes me angry typically revolves around me. But I think what David is saying here is like, Lord, you hear me. You answer me when I call. Why? Because he's set apart. And what he's saying is, is he's giving warning to these men. Hey, don't put your faith your joy in the wrong thing. They'll struggle to do that. Matter of fact, he goes on, and if you can understand what he's saying here in verse four, he says, be angry and do not sin. He goes, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be unsettled with the current state of the land. He goes, I have no problem if, if you desire blessings that have been promised for the people of Israel and you're not getting them. He goes, I have no problem if you're frustrated with that. I have no problem if, if you're a Jew and you're looking for the provision in the hand of God and you're not seeing it. He goes, be angry about that. But he goes, don't sin. Don't, don't long for the goodness and the, the joyfulness of our king and yet you're going to undermine the very people that he's placed over you. That's David's thought process here, which is pretty deep as you're reading it. And he's going, hey, don't become rebellious, unholy men in your lack of trusting God and his provision. And that's what's happening in the kingdom. He goes on, he says, but furthermore, don't just be angry and not sin. He goes, ponder in your hearts and on your beds and be silent. Like He goes, reflect on the goodness of God. Matter of fact, you know silence oftentimes can, in some ways, just reflect trust. When you just take a step back, but how often do we take matters in our own hands, right? Like we get angry at people, uh, we say a few choice words, then we go, oh man, I kind of regret it because there's something in us that we would say, well, I'm to, I'm to be marked differently. I'm to be a person of God. I'm to exhibit joyfulness. I'm to exhibit hope. I'm to exhibit peace. I'm to exhibit love. And then here it is. You find yourself in an unsettled position. Uh, you've got quite the conundrum on your hand. And then in the middle of it, your frustration and your anger, you, you do sin. And then when you do sin, you say some things that you regret, only to step away, be riddled by shame and guilt, knowing that I don't have a clear conscience. Now you've got to come back. And in some ways, you feel like a fool. You've got mud on your face. And now you're having to, in humility, humble yourself. And you're like, man, how in the world did I get here? David says, if you would take a step back, pause, reflect. Do you know when you hear the words, Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God? Do you know that in the context of that, what, what really is being spoken to are, are to enemies of God 
who continue their sinful, rebellious ways, and instead of just stepping back and going, be still and know that I am God, they continue to be God themselves. That's what David's talking here. He goes, you can't exhibit joy if you're continuing to be robbed of it. And the thief of joy is to not trust God or to reflect on him. He goes, verse 5, he goes, you don't just ponder on your beds and be silent, but he goes, offer right sacrifices. Now, when he says offer right sacrifices, he's writing to a group of Jewish people who are in the habit of making sacrifices. But let me ask you a question. Does God rejoice in sacrifices? David would say, I know you do not rejoice. In Psalm 51, he goes, I know you don't delight in sacrifices. So what is he saying here when he says make right sacrifices? He goes, isn't there something about the position of our heart? Do you know the Jewish people oftentimes made sacrifices, but God was not pleased with them? Why? Because their hearts were far from God. Friends, what he's saying here, he's going, hey, be careful. Because the the whole idea of joy is centered on God and his righteousness. If you're not careful, you'll take matters in your hand, in your own hands, and you will usurp God and his authority, and then in your anger you'll sin, you won't reflect on anything, you'll continue sacrifices, and they won't be right. Because does God care about the position of your heart? Absolutely he does. And then he says, and put your trust in the Lord. So where is joy found? When we trust the Lord. Where do we have Joy robbed when we take matters into our own hands. That was David's prayer and plea. Even as he would sing this song around dinner time in the evenings, what he is delighting in is a God that is righteous, who gives relief and distress, and then who gives warning to prideful, arrogant men who continually would maybe proclaim something with their lips, but their hearts would be far from God. He goes, may it not be. And I would just ask you this question before we continue on to verse 6. Hey, friends, what's robbing you of joy? What is it that in some ways causes you to be unsettled? Is it people? Are there people in your life that you're like, man, when I'm around them, it just sucks the life out of me? Who is it? Identify them. Is it your anger? Is it that you, you cannot control your anger? which means that you would be lacking self-control. And in your lack of self-control, your tongue pervasively moves forward down the road and it gets you in trouble. Maybe you reflect on James 3 and in one way you praise God, but in yet another way you curse men. And James, James just says, hey, how is that? And, and how, how should that be? He goes, it should never be. Is it misplaced trust? Are you just looking for satisfaction in the wrong place? That was these men. They thought, well, if we'll get a different king, if we get somebody else in charge, we get David out of the way. Perhaps maybe they thought if I had the kingdom in my own hands, we don't know the context of this, but what we do know is a a group of men who exhibit a lack of trust in God and his anointing king, and they, they want to take matters in their own hands. Is that your challenge? Do you want to take just too many matters in your own hands? Is it bitterness that rules your life? Is it fear that rules your life? hopelessness, maybe it's unbelief in general. What is it? But here's what I want you to realize, is that whatever it is, I want you to know this. Joy is never, ever, 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 nor should it ever be tied to your circumstances. That's the key in this. If the president is not who you would have picked, if gas prices are higher than you want to pay, 
if home prices are exorbitant and you think it's nuts, if you don't like the principal at school, you don't care about the school district, you think you need a better boss, you believe you'd do it better, whatever it is, just realize that joy is not found to those circumstances. Not tied to those things. Hey, your marriage is in trouble. You're, you're not content with who you're raising your children with. Your finances are in a bind. Whatever it is, it's, it's not tied to those things. And that's what David's point is. Step back. Reflect. Know that there is a God who is in charge. And in your anxiousness, in your unsettling, in your lack of being able to get your hands around something and control it yourself, trust that there is a God in heaven who loves you and is working out all things for the good of those who do love him. Even when it doesn't necessarily reflect as a good thing in your life. Because the reality is we know that we can consider it joy in all circumstances. As James would say. And that, my friends, is what I want you to see. But more than that, here's the deal. If you're putting your hope in the wrong place, then you're going to be robbed of joy time and time again. But look what David does. He tells us where the giver of joy is, where it's found. And so let's look at the giver of joy. Let's look what David says about it. In verse 6, he says, There are many who say, who will show us some good? That's what they're saying. So as they're complaining about the king, as they're going around spreading pervasive lies, they're questioning the character of David and his mighty men and his kingdom, what they're basically saying is, is okay, look, when are we, finally, when are we going to finally experience some good? Now, if you played sports or something like that, basically what they're saying, well, when's the ball finally going to bounce our way? You ever had a close game, and if the ball would have just bounced another three inches in a different direction, it would have changed the whole, not only game, but maybe the whole season? That's basically the question they're asking. When's the, when's the ball going to bounce our way? Hey, when's some good going to come to us? So here is Jewish men who would say that they believe in God, Yahweh, who are not excited about the king and the present leader and the condition of Israel, and they're saying, hey, when are we going to finally get something good? Now, we don't know the intention and the motives of their hearts. What we do know is God does. Isaiah 55, his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We know that. So God knows what's going on, even though we may not. But here's what you do have. You have some men who are unsettled and they're looking for joy. They're looking for satisfaction. It seems to be tied to the circumstances of what's going on in the kingdom. But look at David's response. David's response is lift up your face upon us, O Lord. So David says, there are many who go, God, when are you going to show us some good? And he goes, Lord, I know just to lift up my face. Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews says, that the author and perfecter of our faith is the Lord Jesus? Friends, when, when do you want your countenance lifted? Hey, when do you want to experience joy and, and peace and the presence of God? He goes, lift up your face. Look to the heavens. That's the declaration of the king of Israel. He goes, there are, there are tumultuous times. There are people that are questioning my own character. There are people who are, who are betraying me and who are chasing after me. You can experience the pain of all this, can't you? You feel that because there's somebody that's talked about you before? What happens when somebody talks trash about you? What happens when things are unsettled in your life and you feel the conflict and the strain? Does it cause you to lift your countenance to the Lord? Is that where you find your hope and your delight? Look what David says. This is awesome. You better pay attention. And he says this. 
Lord, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. Here's what David's saying. This is, this is crazy. He goes, they're looking for the good old days. They're looking for something to delight in. Maybe perhaps they think Saul's leadership was better. But he goes, in all of it, he goes, God, you've done something in me that they've never experienced. And see, here's what I think happens is, is that we're looking for an experience all the time, right? Like we're looking for jubilation in the party. We're looking for something around the corner that we're like, oh, this is going to be it when I finally get there. And the challenge is, is that oftentimes what we're looking for next, particularly even in this season around Christmas, is this nostalgic feeling that we can remember. Right? The good old days. You remember those? And so as we're cruising through um, University Park the other night and the lights are all around us, our kids are oohing and on, and in some ways you're like, oh, wow, this, this is it. This is it. Isn't this the joy of Christmas? I mean, all the sights and the sounds and the smells and the carols and the music. I hope not. But what brings about that is the good old days. It's the nostalgic feeling. Perhaps that's what these men are experiencing. These men are questioning King David because they, they think it would be better another way. I love what Warren Wearsby says. He says, oh, the good old days. It's well been said that the good old days are a combination of a bad memory and a really good imagination. <laughs> Isn't that true? That's Instead of looking back, lift up your eyes. And then David goes, Lord, you put more joy in my heart than when grain and wine abound. And what he's talking about, he goes, these men, they love the festivals. And every year in Ju Jerusalem, they're going to have their feast. And that's when the harvest is going to come in. And it could be a grain harvest or it could be harvest of, of other fruits like grapes where they have the wine harvest. And there's going to be sacrifice and they're going to give the first fruits to the Lord. And then they're going to experience the jubilation of a party. And, and what David is saying, he goes, they find that as joy. For them, joy is the jubilation you find in a party. But what David is saying, Lord, you've put more joy in my heart than they ever experienced the party. What he's saying is jubilation is not in the party. Jubilation is in the Prince of Peace. And that's what he wants them to experience. As the king of Israel, instead of saying, hey, let me have it my way. Let me just usurp you, know, you guys and, and let me just bestow on you the wrath of the king. He goes, I desire that you know where joy is found. That's his heart, which I think is a beautiful thing because I think that's when you know that you're living under a king who's righteous. And then he says this. He says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, will make me dwell in safety. He shows you the result of joy. So here it is. He, he shows you where joy is found in the person, the work of God, and ultimately in his son Jesus, the king of righteousness, he goes, here's some things that if you're not careful, we're going to rib, uh, rob you of your joy. They're going to be a thief of joy. And he goes, but I want you to know that the giver of joy is God. Look upon his face. Desire him. And then more than that, the result of it is that you live in peace. You lie down and you sleep. 
You're not anxiously fretting. You're not worrying and toiling and laboring. Which, listen, if you're in journey group, I'm going to give you a great question to use in the next couple of weeks. If you're not meeting in the next couple of weeks, make it one of the first ones in the year. Here it is. What is keeping you up at night? Which implies, what is it that your heart is continually chasing after? What are you anxious about? What are you toiling about? What are you laboring about right now? Now listen, I know that in this room, it could come from a mixture of different angles if you answer that question. But the reality is, is you got to ask yourself, what is it that I'm chasing? What is it that I'm thinking and pondering on most? What am I delighting in, finding joy or satisfaction? And if this one thing happened, then I would finally be at rest. What, what is it? Is it the acquisition of something? Is it getting rid of something? Is it a relationship? Is it, I, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I hesitate to speculate. What I would say is this, is that if, if you are staying up late at night and you are struggling to rest, it means that there's anxiousness. There could be particular fear. There could be doubt. I don't know what all of it comes from, but I would tell you that the result of joy means that you've experienced the king of joy and you've got his peace. And when you have his peace and his fulfillment and then what David implies here is that you're going to be able to rest. Now, you may go, well, I can't sleep and I still have joy. Okay, praise the Lord. Really, true joy is not found in your sleep patterns, okay? I just want you to know that you, there's probably a correlation there. So where is true joy found? Where does fulfilling rest come from? Well, if you've been with us, let me just show you where fulfilling rest comes from. It comes, it comes from the Lord. Now, if you remember, real quickly, I'm going to give you a throwback. If you remember Israel, Israel started with a guy named Abraham. Abraham was given a promise from God in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to make you into a great name, a great, name, a great nation. I'm going to give you a land, people, and blessing. I'm going to bless those who curse you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. And I'm going to curse those who curse you. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Then what happens is you eventually see Israel slowly grow to about 70 strong before they go into Egypt to seek refuge at the hands of Joseph. Um, they, they're not there long before leadership changes. The new Pharaoh, Egyptian leader, begins to enslave them. They're there for 400 years under bondage, oppression, and slavery. They're crying out to God. And then guess what? Um, God says, I'm going I'm to raise up a leader who will bring freedom. He raises up a guy named Moses. Moses brings them out of, of of difficult years, 400 years of bondage, into a new, a new place. A place where hopefully you'll find fulfillment and joy and satisfaction. But let me ask you a question. Did they? It reminded me of a bunch of, of, of men in the kingdom of Israel who were going, we want a new king. It wasn't long before they were saying, Moses, what in the world did you do to bring us out here to die? Oh, we want the leeks and the melons and all the good things that we enjoyed there. This man is terrible. It doesn't take long for you to take your eyes off of where joy found, is it? Nonetheless, Moses would struggle in leadership, though he would do many great things. He would not enter the promised land himself. And so God would raise up a new leader. That new leader's name was Joshua. Joshua was a warrior. He was valiant. He was strong in his faith. He was a man who trusted God. He was a, God, a, a man who brought Israel into the presence of God and ultimately into the promised land in a way that blessed the people. He was a man who you would know and understand in Joshua 24. He would just say, hey, I don't know who you're going to serve, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. 
It was said of Joshua that the people followed his leadership, and until all the elders that surrounded him died, they were true to God. But eventually things would change, wouldn't they? And they would still be looking for fulfillment. Well, that's why the Hebrew writer says this in Hebrews 4. Look at it. He says this in verses 8 and 9. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Here's what he's saying. He goes, Moses didn't bring delight for the people of Israel. Moses fell short. Joshua, great man, incredible leader, valiant warrior. He goes, he led the people well, but guess what? It still fell short. It didn't measure up. The people were not fully satisfied. So he says, but then there is a Sabbath rest. And that rest is through Jesus Christ. The one who did measure up and the one who brings perfect rest. And listen, a Sabbath rest that's found in Jesus Christ, if you were to read all of Hebrews chapter 4, has absolutely nothing to do with what you do this afternoon. A Sabbath rest that he's talking about is not about you going home and taking a nap and kicking your feet up and doing nothing the rest of the day. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying that if you're going to have a true Sabbath rest, then you, then you can't go eat at a restaurant today because you're going to cause other people to, to work, and that's going to be a sin. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, um, hey, what Jesus did was wrong by doing miracles on the Sabbath. That's not what he's saying. What is he saying? He's saying true fulfillment and Sabbath rest, real joy, real satisfaction was not found in Moses was not found in Joshua, but it was found in the one that Moses and Joshua pointed to, and his name is Jesus. And Sabbath rest, even though today you may be physically tired, you can still be spiritually refreshed because of who it is that you delight in and who it is that you trust. Now let me ask you a question. Can circumstances be difficult and you still have joy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Perhaps that's why when you think about what God did for us in providing a true Sabbath rest, real satisfaction for the people of God, perhaps that's why you see Luke write these words in Luke chapter 2. Um, you see the, the narrative, the angel of the Lord is going to show up to the shepherds. They're going to be afraid. Look what it says. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I would have been too, I think. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Now, what is he bringing them? What is he bringing them? He goes, This great joy will be for all the people. So apparently, he's not talking about a nostalgic feeling. He's not talking about a pleasure, pursuit. He's not talking about happiness, I don't think, because he's going, I'm bringing you good news of great joy, and it's for all the people. Some of the people? No. Just the Hebrews? No. Just the Gentiles? No. Just males? Nope. It can be for females too. Oh, just slaves? Nope. Freedmen as well. Oh, even barbaric men can experience the freedom and the peace and the joy because it's for all the people. And then he tells us where joy is found. Look at verse 11. He says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Friends, joy is a person. Perhaps that's what David meant in Psalm 4 when he says, Oh God of righteousness! See, that's what I want you to understand, friends, that he is a, a person. He is the one who gives us joy, which is, guess what? One of the fruits of the Spirit. It is the, it is the 
fruit of his own character. See, when you think about the fruits of the Spirit, which are simply found in uh, Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, which just simply says, the fruits of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. When he's talking about those fruits, here's all he's doing. He's just saying, this is who I am. This is my character. And this is what you'll take on as my people. That's what he's saying. Because what, what we need to understand this Christmas time is that as the people of God, if we identify with Jesus Christ as our true rest, then it means that he's our president and no one else is. But if he is our president, then guess what? We don't defame the presidents he places in power. We pray for them. If he is our president, then we don't find joy in our circumstances because we know that there's a king who is still on the throne. We know that if there is a king who's still on the throne, that no matter what happens in this day and age, we know that the only thing that can happen to us that will be ultimately so condemning to us is that our moral body will, will fail. Matter of fact, somebody could take our mortal body. But even when our mortal body is fading away, it seems to be 1 Corinthians 15 that, that we see a clear message from Paul that even though this corrupt and this perishable body is, is failing away and ultimately even could be taken at the hands of evil men. There is a body that has not been defiled and that will never fade away, that is incorruptible, that's being kept in heaven for us. See, we have a future hope and a glory. Why? Because we are ambassadors of Christ. I think I love the way that Peter writes it better, that we are the priesthood of believers that we're in service to our king, that we have a job to do. And what is our job? Our job is that of King David, who we say, oh God, righteousness. When the chariots fell, when our horses fell, and when the mountains fall into the sea, there is a God in heaven who is dependable. He is unshakable. The Hebrew writer says that we have a, a, an unshakable kingdom. And friends, we delight in that. We treasure that. We ponder that. We reflect on that. And even in our bad days, and there will be bad days, we know that joy is found in Jesus Christ. Not a Disney cruise. If you're a parent, you know there's no delight found in a Disney cruise. <laughs> hey, not a trip with your bride to Hawaii. Hey, not to be free of all the challenges you have and the burdens of life right now. Hey, not to finally get your hands around that new home. That's not where joy is found. Joy is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ it is to delight in him when everything else crumbles. And friends, it will crumble. It will ultimately fade away. Why? Because that's what God's word tells us is going to happen. And the older we get, the more aware of our surroundings we'll become, the more we'll realize that our heart is not positioned. It's not meant to treasure the things on earth. It is meant to treasure, and it's meant to ponder, and it's meant to reflect, and it's meant to be stirred for the things of heaven. And so I don't know what it is that you're treasuring. I don't know where it is that you're trying to find joy, but I will tell you there is nothing lasting here on earth. And there is no joy found in nostalgic feelings, gifts under the tree, an expensive Christmas present that's going to leave you paying for the next year it is only found in Jesus. And friends, the earlier you can teach your children that, 
the more at peace they'll be. Perhaps that's why, and I'll close with this, Paul writes to the church of Philippi, and he just says this in chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What is reasonableness? Reasonableness, I think, can be found in Psalm 4. You're either going to reflect the goodness of God to others, or you're going to be the belligerent one going around complaining and grumbling about everything, which I think is why Paul writes to the church of Philippi, which apparently could have been complainers. Don't grumble and complain. Let your reasonableness be known to all. What does that mean? It's a kindred trust. That's what it is. It's a reflection of where your hope is. He says, because the Lord is at hand. That's why. So do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Which is interesting, because what he's saying here is that when we find joy and we rejoice in all that is going on, it seems to be tied to peace. Why? Because joy and peace come from the same person. They're attributes of his character. And next week, we'll talk more about peace. As a third century man was anticipating his death, very close at hand, he penned these words to a friend. He says, it's a very bad world, incredibly bad. But I've discovered in the midst of it, there's a quiet and holy people. And I've learned a great secret. They have found a joy, which is a thousand times better than any pleasures of our sinful life. They are despised, they're persecuted, they're rejected, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are the Christians, and I am one of them. Friends, as you walk out of this room, can I just encourage you with something? Point people to joy. Look, it is a shame. It is a shame that as we go and we eat lunch with friends, that we are meager in our generosity, tight-fisted with our wallets. It is a, it is a shame that we are demanding of our servants and we exhibit little peace or joy. That doesn't seem to characterize the God of the Bible, but yet it seems to be what church people can be known for. Bitter-faced, oftentimes demanding, mean, and may it never be from the people that we would call home here at Stone Point. Matter of fact, I would say this, and I'll end with this. If somebody were to say, hey, Brandon, man, we were in Edgewood, or hey, we were in Wills Point, and we saw the beautiful church. I don't want to talk about a building. I want to go, who would you meet? Who'd you meet? You, you know what the talk of the town always is? It's about the building, isn't it? Oh, isn't that so beautiful? Hey, love the addition. No, the church is the people of God, and may it be a sweet, sweet, sweet presence among an earth that needs it. And may we be one of those Christians. And so, friends, I don't know what the Lord is imploring you to do, but I, I can just tell you, like, be generous be kind. Smile. And some of us, we don't do that very well. So you need to look in the mirror in the morning and you just need to adjust, like you just get it adjusted and go, you know what, I'm gonna, today I'm going to exhibit joy. Because things will get bad. The earth will, the earth will fail, the flower will fade. But the name of the Lord 
it'll, it'll remain. It'll stand forever. And so may we treasure him. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, may we exhibit joy. Thank you so much for this rich text in Psalm 4. Thank you, Lord, that even as I was reading this last week, that I stumbled across such a beautiful, poetic picture, a song that we could sing from our hearts. Oh, God of righteousness. Lord, you've given us more joy in our hearts than any party could fulfill this year. Lord, when wine and, and grain abound, when riches are prevalent, when things are going our way, Lord, it still does not compare to you. And so, Lord, may the jubilation of our heart not be found in anything but the presence and the peace of our God. And as Romans 14, 17 just reminds us, the kingdom is not about eating and drinking, but it's about righteousness and peace and joy through the Holy Spirit. And so, God, may we be a people that are blameless before our King. May we be a priesthood that's righteous. May we exhibit peace and joy and fruitfulness. And may we be led by your Spirit this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.